You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Kenny Fraser, CEO at Triscribe, where he's building world-class health analytics as a service, Chairman at Appointed, NXD at Molsey, he's a chartered accountant and had a long career as a management consultant and business leader with PwC. Specialising in the mobile, digital and communication sector, Kenny has a deep experience of the business of technology and its impact on the wider business world. And he has advised and mentored startups and corporations in more than 40 countries. So welcome, Kenny. Thank you very much for joining me to share your wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's one of the best introductions I've ever had. Vicky, thank I earn my keep. So two rather different questions this week, but I thought your perspective on both would be very helpful. The first person asks, rather existentially, I am the sole founder CEO of a product-based company. We're making progress, got a product to market, are going out to raise some money, but I am increasingly less clear on what my role is and should be. I don't want to be a full-time fundraiser. My face is literally on the packet of the product. I enjoy the strategy and sales and building the team, but I don't really know where I'm supposed to go next and who I need around me. Should I get a board, chairperson, COO? And if I do, where does that leave me? Rather profound. <laughs> I suspect okay. a question you have encountered more than yeah. once. Okay, yes. Well, in some, some form or other, some variation. Yeah. And the second question is, I am hiring my first senior salesperson. As expected, they are negotiating hard and are asking for a lot more money and commission than I feel comfortable paying. Given that we are at an early stage and have so far had a very team-based and collaborative approach to selling and product development. If I give the salesperson what they want, I fear the rest of the company will find it very unfair, given that they have accepted below market rates from the outset, and they may come to see sales as somebody else's problem, which will affect our results. Is there a tried and tested way of compensating very early stage sales teams that will avoid creating problems down the line? So before we start, Kenny, I know from speaking to you and from the insights that Leah Hutchins shared with us in an earlier episode, that you have some very wise phrases in there. So um, perhaps you could introduce yourself and we'll take it from there. Okay, well, I, uh, I'm not sure I can do better than you've done, Vicky, but yeah, Kenny Fraser, I have been around for a long time, so I have the kind of grey hairs so or what's left of them, um, as the tradition goes, and I worked the bulk of my career for a very large firm, professional service organisation, doling out advice of a variety of kinds, mainly to very large tech companies. I include telcos and mobile operators in that because people who don't understand that, uh, mobile operators in particular are the biggest tech companies in the world, certainly the biggest users. And the last four or five years since I stopped doing that, I've been working right at the other end of the spectrum and trying to use what I learned there to help entrepreneurs and companies grow and succeed. I do a bit of investing. I have got that non-exec hat, but my philosophy is always about how can I help the entrepreneur and the company rather than... And you've been doing a bit of uh, CEOing yourself I've, as I've well. Been so I've been CEOing a little bit recently, yes. Yeah, so, um, as you do through, for through that, through that route. So I, I sympathise with the sole, uh, the sole person because I am, uh, you mentioned Triscribe, which is a digital health analytics 
startup is a spin out from Edinburgh University. Uh, it is uh, really just me at the moment, uh, although I have committed to hire my first full time employee to do the development side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that is. Uh, although there are others involved, I am the only one who's actually doing anything right now. Yeah, yeah. and that—that's the really interesting process you go through. I think as a, as a CEO or as a founder CEO, yeah. you kind of start off where you are doing everything. Yeah, and even if you don't want to be, even if you get the theory that you should be working on the business, not in the business, that's fine. Yeah, when there's somebody else in the business. <laughs> But I suspect the first person asking this question has kind of been in exactly that place. They've built this from nothing. They've been used to being on their own. Yes. It's starting to work. And now they're at that place where they, I don't know, either have to start giving up control or bringing people in or developing themselves. And it's really difficult to do that when you're kind of on your own. What, what Have you seen this happen frequently? I've, I've seen it happen frequently. And so I guess I would... I, let me throw a couple of things at it. So, the, so the, the first thing for that individual, there is a strong perception that there's a formula. So you're at this point, therefore you get this money, you get a board, you get these advisors, you get this money. So, so that that's really a bad place to start from. So your objective here is to build a successful business. So you have something that people value and that they want to. Start. Uh, what do you need to do to do that? You will need to create a product, and if it's going to be successful, you will need a team. Then, how do I get that? Uh, I need to get some. I need to either sell enough to be able to build that team, or I need to raise money from someone else. And you can kind of reverse mm-hmm. yourself around to why you're all doing this stuff. And so, the things that will matter by far the most are going to be the product and the team. Uh, so, another saying which I don't use very often. In this context, uh, and it was a friend of mine's, I kind of adopted it. When I was a partner in the very large professional services firm, uh, there's a good friend of mine who's saying used to be, the only job of a partner is to make more partners. And by that he meant is your priorities with your time are either being out in the market generating Mm -hmm. revenue, which enables you to make more partners, or finding and working with people in the team so that they can develop the skills and capacities to be partners. Yep. Very interesting. So then you turn that to a, a CEO or founder context. You're either your job is primarily selling or finding people, or finding people who can who can fill who can the gaps, fill the gaps in and the team grow more than you ever could on your own. Yeah. And ultimately, the CEO job ultimately and quite quickly, but certainly ultimately, becomes about building and growing the team. It's yeah. not about process. It's not actually about strategy. Strategy is just strategy isn't really strategy it's polite to say there but it is about finding and growing people in the team and that might mean you're not selling it might be you might still be the best salesperson mm-hmm. obviously there are other companies where you might be the best tech person but you're not the best salesperson so you've got to fill the right gap so that's the priority that's why you're raising money you don't want to spend your life raising funds then you've got to go out and raise some because if you don't if you never raise funds then you will spend your life raising funds yeah. and that whole raise that, that whole fundraising thing I saw on your website that you said I'm not going to help you raise money, and I, yes. I have that. I have that now myself because the number of people who've gone, oh, yeah. well, you just raised the money for me. Like I can't raise the money for you. I can I can give you some tips on how to raise the money. I can give you some tips on how to increase your chances of success. Yeah. I can review your deck. I can see your pitch. I can do a mock Q and A. I can look at your valuation, how much you're raising, your numbers, the whole lot. 
but I can't raise your money for you. Only you can only, raise only your you money. Only you can do it. And, and it's, unfortunate. it's not unfortunate, it's just fact. And this is very well broadcast as well. So you look it up and the first 10,000 hits you get in Google will, will actually tell you this. People, for some reason, just just miss the first 10,000 and go on to the next one. <laughs> you know, people who invest in early stage companies are investing in the team and the people. So they want to see the people. It doesn't matter who I am or you are, who your chairman is, who your advisors are. Mm-hmm. That's all nice fluff. They want to see you. If you're the sole person, then that's the person they want to see. If there's two or three founders, then they want to see all those people because that way ahead of business plan, idea, IP, any of those other things, that's what they're investing. That's not a very insightful thing. I can say you can read thousands of articles that tell you exactly that. If that's the case and you are going through this phase where you've validated certain things, it deserves to live it deserves to live and it deserves to grow which i think the very early stages of business i mean i look at it as almost like a three monthly thing a process does my business deserve to live in my brain for another three months this deserve to keep existing and i and i visit that very often but there becomes a point where you go you know what it really does and you're starting to then execute in a really big way bring people in bring Yep. team in and achieve more than you can do on your own and I'm, I'm assuming this person's probably at that place of having some people around them because they've got product to market yeah, um, like, yeah. look out to me if you can do it all on your own then <laughs> fine that's great you know and there are people yeah. it gets this all the time there are people who can do everything on their own make you a nice living you know and people have this phrase used to be lifestyle business there's nothing wrong with that yeah. and people who do that by the way will become a very big part of the economy yeah and often have much more profitable businesses. I mean, I used to hate the term lifestyle business when I had yeah. one, and I like was embarrassed by it. It was the most profitable business I ever had. It can be, <laughs> yeah, it can be profitable. It can be subsistence. It can be anything in yeah. between. But I wanted growth. You know, I wanted to be able to. I wanted that business to succeed without me in it. I wanted to be able to get bored and move on to the next one, and that grow on. And the interesting thing is this person is talking about, I don't know what my role is going to be. I don't know where I will fit in after all of that. Presumably, if it goes right, you keep doing what you're already doing. You keep bringing in people. You keep keep living that brand. She, she, I'm assuming it's she, but I don't actually know it is, has their face on their packet and keeps doing that stuff. Yes, if you're the face of the product, you still see Paul Newman's face on the sauce bottle. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, if if that's the way you... If that's part of the brand, that's what you do. You don't even need to be alive for your face to be on, on <laughs> yeah. the product. So you, it's not what you just get up every morning and do. Yeah. You know, the further into the business you get, the more what you get up every morning and do is finding the right people and helping them, helping the people you've got do the best job they can for themselves and for the business. Mm. That's that's what the, the only job of the partner is to make other partners. That's what it means yeah. you've got to you need to be able to help other people create stuff, sell stuff, maintain stuff, provide service. I think one of the things that I hear, perhaps the underpinning fear here, is that everything changes once you have investors and suddenly you've got to be kind of like round this aggressive boardroom table doing all these things. Is that a myth is that something that creeps in through inexperience on the investor and the CEO side or what what should that look like so boardroom table should not be aggressive ever and and most of what you see about you know, it's just particularly badly portrayed for deliberate TV reasons in The Apprentice but you see in lots of other fiction and 
and even supposed fact, boardrooms are not aggressive places because boards boards work as team. So if you get investors, so I could only focus on the team because if your choice is find a non-exec or find a person for the team, find the person for the team. That doesn't mean that non-execs and advisors can't add value. If you get investment, the investors will bring some conditions around, you know, they'll typically have an investment director, uh, they might even ask you to get another non-exec, they'll probably be quite insistent that you have professional advisors for lawyers, accountants, those types of things. What they won't do in the early stage is force you to accept individuals. They'll, they'll suggest someone if you've got no idea. It's the same principle as someone you hire. You want someone who's going to add value to the business, who's going to help. It's probably the best opportunity you will get as an entrepreneur to find someone who's going to help you grow as an individual. So if you can find someone who'd make a great non-exec, someone you'd like to sit with, you know, just like you and I are doing now, mm-hmm. talk about the challenges you're facing, then get that and go to your investor and say, I'd like to invest a director. Could it be this person? And generally, they'll be delighted because they struggle to find people to take those roles. Interesting. So go and find someone who's going to be a helpful mentor to you and bring them into that. And, I mean, obviously, you, you're an experienced NXD. You've done some investment. You've been on all of the different sides of the table. What is the the key... Is there a key role in making that work? I mean, is that the CEO doing that? Is that ideally... I mean, you're, you are a chair. Are you a chair? Yeah. Here, uh, here yes. at some Although uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a, yeah. there's a big difference. There's, I, am, I am old, so this whole idea that somehow or other the chairman and, and other non-execs were somehow different roles is actually rooted in, I think, all the Cadbury report, which right. is the first formal corporate governance. It's not even legislation, it's recommendations. It was adopted as a stock exchange code. It's just people on the board who are not employed by the company. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. There's no legal difference in the responsibilities of chairman, CEO, non-exec, or anyone mm. else who's on that. You know, it's the single factor in making it is the relationship between the people on the board. So if that's just a CEO, founder, and the first non-exec, which it, yeah. which it might be, yeah, uh, and it will be quite often, then that relationship is the critical thing. It's not about agendas or formality or how often or what you do. It's about the relationship between those two people. And, it, you know, if I had to find one piece of advice for you in that, yeah, you as... The CEO, founder, whoever you are, whatever age you are, whatever your background, you need to grow and develop yourself. If you're not growing and developing yourself, then I, don't know, I would get bored out of my skull if I wasn't doing that. Oh, absolutely. Me too. And that, of all the people who are in the company, the person who's most likely to help. If, and it's, it's not just about other people, so it's about you. But if you want to find an individual who's going to help you do that, an NXD role is a need perfect slot to get them actually in and committed as part of the company mm-hmm. and still be that person and mentor. That's really interesting because it is incredibly hard to develop yourself from the inside. I kind of felt like I actually, you know, put a lot of effort into developing a young team. Yeah. But actually, I mean, I was lucky I went on the MIT on entrepreneur development okay, thing. Yeah. But that was right back in um, 2013. Yeah, yeah. Which other people who might listen to this might get the chance to do. Absolutely. And, and that thing. was actually amazing to, yeah. to learn the theory and to, to kind of see all different kinds of businesses. That was amazing for my personal development. But I certainly do think... Towards the end, when I was under you know, a, a hell of a lot of pressure, my own personal development, professional development, actually just yeah. general, 
health, I would say, yeah. started to take yeah. it started to take its toll. And it's one of the things that's been great in this last kind of like almost a year of yeah, stepping yeah. back is just yeah. how much I've been able to invest in yeah. my own professional development. I, I think if I could give some advice to founders and CEOs is, is to not forget your own development in that mix, to actually find a way, even if it's for a long weekend, even if it's for you know, a week to get yourself out of the business, go learn somewhere else from other people and come back in. Go learn something else or go do something in the business that doesn't, you know, we used to do a couple of years, uh, one of my biggest clients, a mobile operator, and I got myself and some of the other senior people in the team levered in and we all did a couple of shifts in one of the shop, high street shops at Christmas, mm-hmm. selling for speed. It's still yeah. in the business, client's business, but you're learning. And I, I was lucky that I grew up in an organization where personal growth and development was an absolute embedded pillar of progression. So I could not have had a career there without doing that. And it's funny because you can be on an incredibly steep learning curve. I mean, and I think that whole founder-CEO learning curve is insane. It's more of a learning cliff, really. And you don't really know whether you're dropping off it or climbing up it at any one time. Um, On the day-to-day, it's challenge after challenge after challenge. You're on this really steep learning cliff, but that isn't actually the same as personal development and personal growth. No, it's not. And it's it's, that transition is kind of hard to manage and it's a natural one. That's why I say I was lucky to be embedded in an organization like that because you, you know, when I started there, it was your typical straight out of university, do your professional accounting qualification. So that development at that stage, a lot of it is still about what we would formally call learning. And, mm. you know, and you don't lose sight of that either. There's always bits of learning. But the, the value of formal, structured, defined learning and the, the role that that plays in your personal development shrinks as you get older just probably yeah. you've crammed as much into your brain as it can possibly cope with yeah. <laughs> uh, partly because you you do just know stuff you know and it's you know and you you're inherently incapable of going and learning brand new stuff in the same way but that doesn't mean you don't keep growing and developing so i would absolutely i'd say to anybody you don't just have to be ceo founder personal growth personal development i still look at that i still ask myself that how do i do that how can i do more what what is it where are the areas where i'd like to get better I, if I had to add one other thing on that, there is biggest risk that we found with people. And I include myself in this because I used to have this view. There used to be a philosophy that personal development, uh, because it was linked to progression, it was about strengths and weaknesses and your personal development was about dealing with your weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is because sometimes if you want to do certain things, then you're going to have to address a weakness, even if that just means toning it down and finding someone else to do the job for you. <laughs> However, the best personal development and 90% of your time and effort should be on your strengths. Yeah, that is got that really stuff. profound. Yeah. Make use of it, leverage it, maximise it. Yeah, I love um, the Strength Finders. It's run by Gallup. Um, I used to do this with every new hire, yeah. get them to do the Strength Finders test. There's a book that goes with it. it you do all these various surveys and, and it, it ranks your top strengths. And the whole philosophy behind it is you can get less bad at what you're awful at or you can get even more brilliant at what you're already exceptional at. And everybody is far more motivated. As a manager, it becomes very important to balance the team because, and that's why I used to do everybody's strength finders, put them in a shared folder. We'd be able to look at them because if you had too many people whose strength was learning, 
and analytics, which I certainly had in the data yep. company, you really started to get groupthink yep. and actually you also started to get this culture of pursuing the interesting as opposed to the important. Yeah. So you actually have to balance them through. And I actually had an Excel spreadsheet where like everybody at their strengths were on it and, and we'd be like, we really need somebody competitive. Like, we really need somebody yeah. competitive at some point to just really just, rally us. You need to. Um, but yeah, it's, it's actually a really good way yeah. of thinking, actually. We will never address issues of diversity anywhere in society, but it's all about tech, but it goes anywhere without taking that sort of mindset. You cannot address it by saying, there we go, I don't employ enough women, enough ethnic minorities, enough whatever, because you will end up... I, I was having this conversation in a pub with a lady who's on another uh, board that I'm on, you know, and she's roughly my age. She's a corporate lawyer. She went to the Edinburgh equivalent school to the one I was at in Glasgow. And she's great, right? And she has incredible value. There's zero diversity there because mm-hmm. we've got kids the same age doing yep. some of it. It's all, we happen to be different genders. Yep. We're quite smart people, but we're not very diverse. We yep. come from very similar backgrounds. And I, I also, and I would add one final thing on this, and you can put this as an ask to people that listen, because if anyone's got an idea of how to deal with sort of this, I would love to hear it because it's one that wrestles with me. When I spend time in this community in Scotland, I know when I meet entrepreneurs, and founders, I am meeting some of the most talented people that we have here in Scotland, many of whom are at the early stage of that journey and have got 20, 30, 40 years even ahead of them, where they will be holding leadership positions in our community, whether that's in business or politics or Mm -hmm. charitable or social or whatever, and are already being recognised as leaders and have the talent to be incredible leaders. How do we, we help those people over long term maximise that talent in whatever roles that they do and that's a thread that needs to go through whatever they do even if they make a successful business and sell out or have several failing businesses and do something different whatever those things are almost irrelevant to that individual thread yeah and it, that's a fascinating one I mean I've had Mark Logan on the podcast several yeah. times actually kind of exploring those questions because it's not the theory is interesting the theory is better to read around this stuff than not read. It's better to learn around this stuff and not learn. Yeah. But as long as you don't think what you read is what you do, then yeah. Yeah, and also that and not very much of what there is to read is fit for purpose of for a startup or for an entrepreneur who's in their early twenties or mean like I've got I mean I, I yeah. did my I did mine much later. I mean really I wish that I'd done my last company at 25 rather than 40 but hell you know you're still you're still going through this process of making it all up as you go along and learning what kind of leader you are as you go along and what kind of leader perhaps you should be not just what you are and where the gaps are there isn't actually anything much that i've come across which is a real semi-structured way of kind of measuring and developing and understanding yourself long term over that I mean it's actually I haven't come across something I mean yeah. maybe people know of stuff and if they do you know how to submit your yeah. question or your I'd comment love, I'd, yeah, I'd um, love to hear but about I'd it love well. to learn yeah. about that actually yeah. um, so the second one is interesting the second yeah. one I have battled with this question um, yeah. I got so many sales hires wrong before I got it right and then when I got it right I don't think I got the whole compensation framework right 
to the benefit of the company as a whole, I suddenly found myself with an expensive management layer and the rest of us. And that wasn't good for the company's long-term nope. future. So the person asks, you know, they are asking for more money and more commission than they feel comfortable paying. And they're really worried about knocking the bounce of the company out of whack. As they yeah. should be. I did as that. As they should be, yeah. As they should be, yeah. <laughs> and also, they're worried that sales will now become regarded as somebody else's problem. Yeah, yeah. I did that too. <laughs> so, so is okay, there so any I'm, kind of tried and tested methods, so, anything you've seen? Um, so, I kind of go off the reservation pretty early with this. So, there are lots of tried and tested things. Uh, most of them are wrong. And I would, and for me personally, most of them are dangerously wrong. So, uh, this is genuinely an area where I think. Uh, a much different and more innovative approach is required. And they're wrong partly because of myth and partly because there mm-hmm. is a reality of how people think that stuff gets sold, which is the way it's always been done, mm-hmm. but it does not need to be the way it needs to happen. So this is, this is not the sta- standard answer. Right? Tell me more about the wrong stuff first, so actually. The, so the wrong stuff is rooted in two, two things. One is it's rooted in the model that says you sell stuff. Right? So I just don't, I just don't think uh, selling is a good way of uh, getting your product into clients. It's been a necessary way, but it's a necessary way because the whole sales process is built on a law of hard numbers. I'm doing something that I hate and my customer hates. If I do it often enough to enough people, someone will buy. And that's the underlying philosophy. That's why you will read articles, for example, which say, well, oh, developers go home at night and they open their laptop and they develop either work on what they're working on for you or they do development. Mm-hmm. Your sales guys don't do that because they don't they don't go home and sell to people because they hate what they do. And they're like, okay. So therefore you have to pay them a lot of money and you're like, okay, or you could actually not do it that way. Yeah. They don't like it. I tell you another thing which is very, very deeply buried and hidden by by the general approach to this is particularly in B2B, you are going to be selling to introverts most of the time. I am an introvert. I am an introvert that functions as an extrovert. (laughs) I hate it. In any situation, (laughs) shape or circumstance, even when it's something they really want to buy, they do not like. And the way big corporations deal with that is they hire procurement people and they put them between the leaders. Is that what that's all about? That's fascinating. The job of procurement is to keep salespeople away from the rest of the company. (laughs) That's how it came to be. (laughs) That's that makes so much sense. It's a layer of defense <laughs> to get stuff away so you, you know, don't get into it. I think there's a massive myth about sales, right? So that doing sales well is hard, but it's it's made harder by the preceding model. So, and the, that model is exacerbated when, once you start loading commission onto it. Right? So, so, so the last thing I'm wrong, I have, I'm not a massive fan of commission of any kind. Commission which is geared to an individual I absolutely do not think is the right thing to do. For me, it feels so counterintuitive to everything you are trying to do as a leader. You're trying to build teams. You're trying to build teams that function super well together. You're trying to get shared ownership. You're trying to get everybody to take responsibility. And then this whole team works together and the person whose name was on the proposal gets the commission. And that just kind of, to me, feels... Negative, actually. It it is negative, right? So you go back to fundamentals. So what is commission? Commission is an incentive. Purpose of incentives is to get people to act in certain ways. Incentives are very dangerous tools anyway, because as soon as you get people to act one way, 
intending to not act in another way. So mm. you need to be really clear. Yeah, people will work towards the incentive, any, however stupid the incentive yes. is. So whenever you create an incentive, you need to be really clear that it aligns with how you actually want people to behave rather than some clever way around it that they can behave instead. And so incentives, incentives are very dangerous tools. And if you can't find one that aligns, you're better off not having one than having one. Commission's a dangerous incentive anyway. Once you put it in the hands exactly as you described, if it's an individual, you know you need you need a team to deliver this stuff. And by the way, again, if you're selling to companies, they're going to be buying as a team. Right? Yeah. It's not one person. There's a great myth that you see in a lot of people say you need to find the buyer, you need to find the guy who signs off. There probably will be in some companies, not all. In some companies, there'll be a named individual who signs the document. That individual is not making a decision. That individual is collectively representing a team decision. Getting to that person. So I've, we just signed our first contract for TriScribe, the company I mentioned earlier, selling to the NHS. There are at least 10 people in that hostel who've had to say yes before the lady who signed the purchase order signed the purchase order. She is the buyer, right? You drew up your hierarchy and say, oh, you've got to get to Georgina. Mm. But if you turn up on her doorstep and you haven't, the other nine people don't know who you are, yeah. she's not going to sign anything. You're not going to get there. I mean, I, I found no selling to retailers. I mean, we had our, we had generally had our person that owned the problem on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. They were always loved us because we were walking in the door yeah, potentially solve solving problem. the problem that they cared about. But the bigger unit, the bigger buying unit did not have their passion or interest in the problem. So they were having to do a lot of internal selling of the problem and why this solution was even relevant to the company. And then there were lots of different people in the mix with very kind of entrenched views of what they might have to change something or do something different. And, well, they didn't want to do that. It was was really complex. Yeah, it's complex. And they they want to speak to different people. And I think probably, as you've described it there, I mean, I haven't really thought about it like that before. And I think I probably fell hook, line and sinker for that whole myth of how you were supposed to sell. So I was underconfident in my own ability because I am not a salesperson. Yeah. Although I was like obviously going out advocating, championing and people were buying from me and saying that they wanted to yeah. buy from me because they liked me or they you know liked yeah. what I was offering. So I was quite underconfident because I didn't believe I was a professional salesperson and yeah. as you say I'm introvert so I hate being sold too so I hate the idea of selling in yeah. that sense of the word. But actually, when I went and took my team, this is the data queen, you know, this is the guy that's building yeah. it, this is the person who understands the problem because they've worked in this world all along, and here's me making all this happen. We were really effective. As we grew, and I fell for that myth of, I need the red-hot salesperson who takes all of this off our hands and just goes and sells this now, actually, that didn't work. No, and... And so there's a specific circumstance in which that can work, right? You may still not feel very good about it afterwards, but it can work. But it can only work if you have an absolutely crystal clear defined product, value proposition, and customer. Very, very, very few companies have of any size or scale, yeah. right? So yeah. I'm you now that GE can't answer that for any yeah. division. That's why they're in so much trouble, right? So you don't yeah. need, that does, does not just apply. In early stage companies, this applies in space. It's very unusual to meet someone whose company has completely nailed those three things or even one of those things. The company is a process of exploring what these things are. And that's actually the real world. And so what you need in that position is people who can go out and build relationships with potential customers 
understand their problem and understand whether that is a good fit for what you can deliver. And and if it is, yes, there's a little bit of technique to getting over the line and getting it signed. But it's mm-hmm. about building relationship. They have to work as part of a team because that whole team, you know, you can't deliver that value without people developing the product or making it what you know, smart the product is. You, know, you can't make, you can't do it without someone coming in and cleaning the office in the morning and making it an environment people want to work in. It's not. Yeah. Everyone's in the team. And financially, in most companies of this type, your early stage typical company, you already have an in-built core team incentive that you're all aligned around, which comes in the form of participation in the share capital of the company. Yeah. So why are you bringing in anyone at any salary and giving them an incentive, which is not the same as that? Yeah, and that's... <laughs> Whether it's individual yeah. or team, why? Yeah. Right, so you, you get, once you're GE... Yep. Or Vodafone or HSBC, whatever you pick and say, not everyone's in the share option scheme, or even if they are and there's an employee share option scheme, it's not you know, it's not going to make or break their life and they're so far distant. I need to scale those incentives down. But when there's only six of you, yeah. you're all going to be in it. And if number seven has a different incentive, no yeah. matter who they are, there's a further thing. There's a further thing. And this actually, this came out this came out of my son's mouth yesterday, right? I hadn't thought of it this way, right? So there you go. Learn something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Eventually he'll learn something as well. But he's, he, you know, he made a good point. He said that there's another difference between salespeople and developers, right? He's studying to be a computer scientist. So he's obviously on, on that side of this argument. But he's right. He said, not only do developers go overnight and they develop stuff, what they typically do is they go and they do something that's more difficult than what they do in the <laughs> because they're engaged by the tough problem. And if you say, yeah, I'm going to take my product to the next level and I'm going to put some really brand new whizzy technology in it. Every in a new development team wants to be on that exciting hard thing. Salespeople as a breed, I don't know, but sales commissions produce an incentive that works exactly reverse. It says to the sales guy, go out and find the easiest thing. And I so made this mistake and that yeah. is not to denigrate the salesperson no, 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 involved. No, no, not. Yeah, so that's you know, what I'm being careful actually, saying sales you know, my sales, The salesperson yeah. doing this, A, would not have been conscious that they're doing yeah. this and Anne is also a wonderful person who I remain friends with yeah, yeah, but absolutely because of the way we'd set that up went out and because we were under pressure we needed revenue you know we needed yeah. results went out and sold the easiest things to sell now the easiest things to sell are often consultancy or the random thing that just came out of the client's head while they or were stream of consciousness it's just let me go and sell to the, the, the shop next door because selling to Vodafone or yeah. whoever it might be is hard. And actually, looking back at all that, that knocked our product roadmap off. That actually, I mean, that, that was that a major step in you know, the, yeah. the, the complexities I found myself in is when we chose to sell consultancy, we took ourselves down a path that was very, very hard to get back from and actually seriously damaged our ability to keep developing product and be clearly defined as a software product. And um, so you've got, and that's a good example, and it doesn't mean you can't do that, but you just need to be conscious of what you do because you're inevitably, in any early stage business, you need to be going after the hard stuff because you're trying to grow from nothing, right? So yep. yeah, it's fine if you're, Vodafone, I keep using Vodafone, but you can pick anyone, you know, BP, whoever. Mm. You can go after the easy stuff because you've got big established business and you just turn it on. Yeah, if it, if there was easy stuff lying out there sufficient to make you profitable, then you'd be profitable and you'd be a big business. You don't have that. So you need yep. to find 
the hard stuff, the people who don't understand it or who don't want to buy or are going to take too long or whatever the block is, you need to get over some of those obstacles. If you incentivize people to do the easy stuff, they will never do the hard stuff. If you choose as a team to say, we really need the money, let's do a little bit of the easy stuff as a sideline just to get money in the door, and you're consciously doing that because there's a, an end goal and you, you're balancing it, that's fine. You can manage that. It's not impossible to do. You don't always have to pick the hardest route, but you are going to have to tackle some of the hard stuff. So if you just say, there's the easy money, I'll run there, I've forgotten the hard stuff, and when you get to the end of the easy money, you haven't made any progress towards the hard stuff, you're never going to get there. And it's it's hard stuff. It's really interesting because, I mean, obviously the question asked, and I did edit it slightly because it was a very broad question, but the answer applies to the original broadest question, which was answered because... You can create these situations very quickly where your original set of employees who came in a low market rate, yeah. really bought into the options, you know, yeah. creating value for one reason, remain in that place where your later hires, your senior hires, the C's that you drop in later and the execs and all of this kind of thing are compensated completely differently. And there's a tension between that. And actually, it seems like if you're much more deliberate in your thought about how you're rewarding anything yeah. and keeping that aligned, you, you can plan to avoid that you, problem. You can't completely avoid it, but it's not its not a black and white cliff edge. And I think that's the risk that people run as they say, oh, I need, this needs to suddenly be completely different from everything else I've done. And that's not how it works. The fact is, if you're successful, you will grow out of that because, yes, you will get to a point where you're big enough that... You have to be paying market rate because people who come in, the number of employees and the maturity of the business is such that that is how you give an appropriate incentive to get the best people. You're lucky at the early stage in that you have an alternative incentive because you can't afford to pay market rate. You know, you don't suddenly go from that's what we're, you know, we, we do all that to suddenly now I'm going to get to the highest in the market. You gradually yep. eke out of that. And those people who were in early have either cashed in those share options and made their money out of it or in some other way or have risen up in some other way that they've, they've kind of gradually come up mm-hmm. towards it. You, you always have a bit of tension even in very big organisations between yeah. the people who are on the payroll and you only pay 500 quid extra to get someone else that. Yeah. that so there's always a there's always a day-to-day thing but you're you're hiring the, the solution to your problems is not going to be let me go and hire someone who I pay twice as much incentivise differently who is only taking the job for the money that I'm paying, right? Yep. Everyone else in your team is in it because they believe that you can make success. You, and it really you need to find does destroy your team. If you do it, if you do yeah. it, it might be a short-term get some investors yeah. and your board off your back, but actually it destroys your team. It, it destroys your team. It's ex- it might get investors off your back, but it will not ultimately get them off your back. So it, yeah. it won't work. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's not going. It's not actually going to get you to where you need to get to. Either find someone who's got that experience, and, but who's prepared to to work for a different type of incentive package. If they've got that, that's great. If they haven't, yeah, I'd much rather because again, this is what you're doing in every other role in the company, including your previous questioner, who's CEO and founder. You know, I bet he or she hasn't been CEO of, of six big businesses or six small ones before they're learning on the job so you know, don't hire the f- a 45 year old so called proven 
absolutely gold-plated solution. Go and hire a 25-year-old who's got a lot to learn because that's what your tech team's like. That's what your yeah. marketing team's like. That's what the CEO's like. That's what everyone else is like. And, yeah. give, and give them the platform in terms of the quality of the business, the vision, the culture of the business, the team they're working in to learn and grow. And and it's interesting. Not I mean, everyone will learn to, and grow. To, to, Some to, will flag, to wave the flag slightly for age diversity, I think the important thing is about it's about the learning and yeah, growing yeah, so, mentality. Yes, yeah. So that doesn't um, mean that it, it, it doesn't it, mean it can't be a forty-five-year-old. Yeah, it doesn't who wants mean it can't be a forty-five and and, and, and older actually. And, and I yeah. think that that can work too. Young, yeah. yeah, I'm forty. Just, I am, yeah. just like from the perspective of the forty-five-year-old, I'm actually just deep in there. it's that it's the mindset. It's the mindset of learning and growing and that opportunity and that's. You know, that is that is what yes, whatever age or background, that's what you're doing. You're putting people yeah. into a new environment. We're all trying to do something and stretch yourself to do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. And that's how why you do, why don't you want a salesperson whatever you call yeah. them, right? And that's I prefer why, to call them customer like, relationship than sales. Oh, I was gonna that, I meant to ask that. What should we be calling these people? Customer relationship. That, that that's useful yeah. to know. I think the interesting thing is if you hire for that growth mindset. And you deliver it, and yeah. you you have that embedded into your culture. Whether it works or whether it doesn't work, you can look yeah. at what you've achieved and go on. You know, every single person in my company is in a better place than yeah. they were at the beginning as a result of having done that. And you know, now with the benefit of time, I can look at myself and go, you know, I am better at what I do for having yeah. done this. And so, actually, was pretty much all of my team. And well, it is an interest, you know. Well, that's, then that's that's, that's, like, that's not a failure. That's not even a risk that is success yeah. in its own terms. The final thing I would say is if you do find yourself in a position where you really feel that commission's right, do it on a team basis, not on an individual. Yeah. And there's a really Bring interesting book. The yeah, there's a really that. interesting book about how that can work. If you are thinking about commission and team commission, have a read of Impossible to Inevitable by um, Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin, who are the guys behind yeah. Sastra, yeah. because they talk about how team commission works. I read that book. I bought a copy for like in my entire executive and said, we're doing this. Um, yeah. But it was too, you know, to try yeah. to impose that after we'd created yeah, yeah, it, once it didn't you, it's work. It's very hard to break. I mean, have a read of that before you think about it, because it's actually a really interesting approach. We, uh, we hired, a, we hired didn't hire, a new partner who came into the business, my old business, uh, at a very senior leader position, more senior than I was, taking over a big business unit, consulting unit that I worked in. And a uh, really good guy, but you know, there were some things that he just didn't know. So he came in, and day one or day two, he's in... Uh, sitting in a big room with a, a lot of partners, mainly leadership group, including me, and he's, what we're going to do, he said, one of the things I'm going to change, and I realised it really hard, is we're going to move away from incentives-based on individual fee earning to team-based. And we're all sort of looking at it and saying, who's going to tell him that's, we've never worked any other way. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it works. It's yeah. like, oh, all right, Excellent. that's really good. Right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Great, we'll do that. Okay, well, stay with that. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Kenny. Um, you too, I Vicky. could keep talking all day, but I know you've got things to do, as I allegedly have I. Oh. So uh, <laughs> you've been listening to Vicky Brock and Kenny Fraser, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and as ever, submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Thank you.